As they laid in bed at night, the children heard a creaking, a whispering as they laid there far from sleeping. Come play, come play, they heard the voices say, sibilant and seeking for their innocent prey. Nay, 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 we should not play with creatures of the night, for spectral pleasures bring spectral plight, the children did quietly say. But there was one, the one that was wont to pray, and he said, I'll play. And so child and creature, they passed the night and passed it as though it were day. Such pleasures, such sights, a sensuous display. And in the morning light, that same child heard the voice from the night and it speaking his tongue caught. And though he fought, the devil had his say. You are listening to the Spectral Skull Session, tales from the twilight world of myth, mystery, and imagination. The idea behind this podcast is that we explore claims about the occult, supernatural, and paranormal from an analytical standpoint. We're open to the existence of a world beyond the five senses, and we dismiss that dogmatic skepticism that insists that any story about the unexplained has to reduce to hallucinations or swamp gas. But we're not committed to any particular theory or philosophy about what the paranormal is, and we realize that, whatever is out there, the answer is likely to be more complicated than any existing model or theory. What we bring to the table is small s skepticism, a skepticism that we throw as much on the mainstream accounts as we do on the supernatural story. Okay, let's get started. Welcome to the Spectral Skull Session. Tonight's episode will be on exorcisms. We wanted to do at least a few scary episodes for the Halloween season, so here's one. And then we have uh, next week we'll be doing ghost stories, true stories of encounters with spirits, spooks, specters, demons, devils, and minor deities. So don't forget if you have any story about such things, please email us at spectralskullsession at protonmail.com. By the way, did we announce last time that the website is up? I think we did. Yes, well, we did, re- Dane. Okay, great. Chris, a reminder, the website is up. So check on that, and I'll be posting a blog post that ties up our uh, UAV episode later this week. All right, Chris, um, so we're talking about exorcism today. What kind of work did you do? What research did you do on the topic? Oh, wow. So I, of course, ventured forth towards that nebulous realm, otherwise known as Reddit. Aside from that, you know, I did some uh, more serious research here. And so I have uh, some excerpts I'm going to read from uh, T.K. Osterreich's work, Possession, Demoniacal, and Other. And then I also have a pretty interesting article from the Washington Post about Richard Gallagher, who is a board-certified psychologist who also helps Catholic priests identify the demonically possessed for the purposes of exorcism. That sounds awesome. So I have um, a copy of notes that were kept by one of the priests who was involved in the famous St. Louis Exorcist of 1949. It's the exorcism that became the basis for William Blatty's novel, The Exorcist. And then that novel became the basis for the 1973 film, The Exorcist. So we got a lot to go on. Do you want to get started? 
Yeah, I'll go ahead and get started. So I think I'll go ahead and just jump into one of these Reddit tales. And you know, while Reddit maybe is not the best source, it's nice and interesting to see what people are saying on the ground level, right? And so as we tie these all in together today, we have some, some more reputable sources here. We have our Reddit sources here. But I think what we're seeing is at least socially the same kind of trend. And uh, we see corollaries between these different experiences, regardless of the source that we're pulling from. So I, I'm just going to read this. This was posted by Chelio 79 a year ago on demonic possession. I have witnessed a Satan worshiper who claimed to be possessed by a demon of whose name she knew be exercised in a Christian church completely outside of any church functions. There were only four people present during the exorcism, including the young woman who was exorcised. The young woman was wearing rings on all of her fingers, as well as an ankh and a black crystal hanging from her neck. She struggled aggressively throughout the exorcism, and at times needed to be held by two of us, one either side. Her strength was way more than you would think possible for a young woman who weighed just 40 kilograms. One of the two ministers present at the exorcism began to remove the rings from her fingers. I asked him why he was doing this. He replied, spirits can manifest in the metal. He then produced a small pair of wire cutters and proceeded to cut the chains holding the onk and the black crystal from around her neck. The woman was a friend of mine whom I had brought to the church with no intention at all of having an exorcism performed on her. I protested saying, you can't cut her jewelry off. The minister with the wire cutters looked at me in the eye and said, Just watch this. I watched as he firstly cut off the ankh, removing it, then doing the same with the black crystal. The moment he removed the crystal, there was what seemed to be the sound of an unearthly shriek. My friend went from struggling frantically to slumping over motionless for a moment, then raising her head and looking around, smiling. She had a different look in her eyes to what she had previously. They were almost bright blue instead of a more gray blue. She got up and started walking around the area of the church where we were situated. When she saw a mirror, she stood there in front of it, staring at herself and touching her face. She said excitedly, I can see myself in the mirror. I said, of course you can. What's strange about that? She responded, I haven't been able to see myself in a mirror for years. I can't remember the last time I saw myself in a mirror. After that, we walked outside, and she was like an excited child with a big smile on her face. She said, I can feel the wind against my skin. I asked her why that was such a big deal, and she responded, I can never usually feel the wind against my skin. Then she started walking around and looking down at the grass and up at the trees, saying, This is beautiful. Look at all the green. The grass and the leaves on the trees are green. I once again responded with something like, of course they are. Didn't you notice that before? She said that trees and grass always appeared to her before as being black, brown, and gray in color. I knew that my friend claimed to be possessed, but never really believed it up until then. I was brought up as a Roman Catholic, but had long since lost my faith and no longer even believed in the presence of God. I was only at that church that day to do volunteer work which I was roped into doing by a friend of my auntie's because of my mother. 
My friend was only with me because we'd been hanging out with another mate of mine prior to him dropping me off the church. She needed to go to the toilet when we got there, which was the only reason that she entered the church in the first place. When she mentioned that she needed to go to the toilet, and I told her that she could use one in the church, she shook her head saying, Church doors slam shut on me! I told her that they wouldn't and convinced her to get out of the car with me, then knock on a few different doors as all the ones we tried were locked. After about 45 seconds, one of the ministers opened one of the doors welcoming me. I told him that my friend needed to use the toilet, and he said, No worries. Come in, and I'll show you to the bathroom. The three of us walked to the bathroom. She went in, and then the minister and I walked to the kitchen where lunch had been prepared. I always got there right on lunchtime and had some good food and a chat with the brothers before doing any work. As I stood in the kitchen having something to eat and chatting with two of the brothers, another volunteer who was also a member of the church came into the kitchen. He approached me and said, there's something up with your friend. She's standing in front of the big wooden crucifix around the corner from the bathroom, looking at it restlessly and shaking her head. The main minister in charge of the church looked at me. I looked at him and said, I think I know what the problem could be. He led me out of the kitchen into a private area. We sat down and I explained to him that her claims about being possessed by a demon. I didn't mention that she was a Satan worshiper only what she had claimed, which was that a supposedly immortal entity who took the form of a human named Craig had jumped a demon named Klaus into her before walking out of her life completely. The minister looked at me and simply said, Do you think we should go and have a word with her? I replied, Yes. We went and found her and sat down in a U-shaped booth with her, accompanied by the second minister in charge. The minister in charge called my friend by her name and said, Did you know that God loves you? She looked down, shaking her head. The minister then said to her, addressing her by her name again, Yes, Jesus loves you. He said this with a voice of assertive authority. That's when my friend started moving aggressively, shaking her head from side to side. This is how the exorcism, which I have already described to the best of my ability, commenced to take place. The story is my honest recollection of what happened that day. At the end of it all, I said to the minister in charge, How can I deny God after this? I am a Christian now, but never have I discussed this with anyone from either of the churches which I now attend of which neither are the same one that I have been writing about. I am interested in other Christians' opinions of and experiences regarding demonic possession and exorcism. And then he asked for additional posts, and that kind of kicks off the thread. So I think some pretty interesting stuff here. Yeah, I've never heard light of that kind of sensory distortion from a person who's possessed, like regularly not being able to see the colors of the trees for what they are. Yeah, I mean, who knows? Maybe she was just kind of colorblind, and along with the uh, possession came a spiritual healing. Yeah, that's also possible. Anything is possible in a case like this. So that's pretty incredible. Does it say where it happened? You know, no, but I'm, I'm guessing like Australia or New Zealand from the proliferation of the use of the word mate. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. And also, he discusses her weight in kilograms. So that that's my kind of stylistic vibe on the writing is a country like that. I guess it could be like South Africa. Definitely. Or uh, New Zealand. 
Tasmania. Yeah, Tasmania. Oh, Tasmania is part of Australia, isn't it? Well, it is full of devils, Dane. Yeah, so that's one. That's a source of concern. I don't know how, what their relationship is to the supernatural. Uh, I think it's unrelated. Okay. I have heard they're just marsupials. So that's nuts, Chris. I mean, I can't imagine that kind of a sort of a drive-by exorcism. You kind of wander in a church to use the toilet and you come out with your soul saved. It's kind of a pretty good deal. Yeah, I know. It sounds like she really um, left quite a spiritual load at that facility. (laughs) Very good. Excellent. So I don't know. So this is this is interesting. Well, I will say this: we don't know where this came from, um, but the kind of like usually drive-by exorcism. Certainly, there are other parts in the world where exorcisms are much more common and commonplace, right? And so I know we're kind of having some fun and we're joking around here, but culturally, that just kind of could be part of the kind of common experience. Someone comes in and they have this kind of like spiritual experience, and then they're exorcised of a demon, and it's just. You know, it's unique and it's special as it seems here, but also it just may be more commonplace than we're used to having experienced in uh, the United States. And so I think that we need to be, we do need to be somewhat respectful of this as we talk about it, um, because we're just talking about a very different cultural context here. And again, there are places in the world where, uh, you know, sightings of magic are more commonplace or just a matter of fact in terms of like an everyday experience, right? The spiritual dimension of life just have it has a tangibility and a realness that is part of the culture. For sure. So yeah, maybe it's just a more religious part of the world. And they didn't say what religion it was or what kind of Christianity no, they didn't. It was just some Christian church, you know. Um, he said he was had been a cat practicing Catholic, but it's not really clear that this is Catholicism. There's a mention of brothers, so maybe. Uh, but you know, the uh, exorc- Catholicism, because um, you have to get permission for an exorcism in the Catholic Church. Doesn't he describe it as a full blown exorcism? Yeah, no, he does. He just is kind of wanders in and then. You know, she starts having this experience and then other people notice it, take note of it, and then they just kind of go into a full-on exorcism. Now, I think it's interesting, too, you know, the way he describes the uh, amulet around her, you know, ankle and crystal around her neck and these things, you know, these are definitely could be, you know, occult fetishes, right? So something that might be long to the world of satanic magical practice um it was interesting too that the the uh, exorcist identified this and then felt the need to remove these things as part of it and then there was an immediate response so i I think that was a you know interesting or maybe even telling part of this narrative yeah i guess she's lucky they just happen to have a bolt cutter at the church maybe they have to deal with stuff like that all the time well, I imagine, they, you know, they have to do maintenance on the grounds, right? So That's true. And, uh, you know, usually bolt cutters or what have you for day-to-day physical maintenance, but also for the spiritual maintenance 
of those passing through the doors. Absolutely. I think it might be worth saying something, Chris, about why exorcisms are so central to um, American culture. So where did that all com come from as a cultural phenomenon? Well, it's been a uh, it's it's been long been part of the Christian tradition, as I think we've already established, and our listeners should know. But I think that sort of uh, interest in exorcisms peaked in the seventies. I already mentioned that that the uh, the film The Exorcist, which is supposed to have been one of the scariest movies of all time, was released in nineteen seventy three, right? But um, I don't know if it's just that it was a scary film. And that's the reason why it had the impact it did. I suspect that it had to do with the time that The Exorcist was released. So uh, it came out during a time when America was going through a period of cultural upheaval. Charles Manson's cult was put on trial in 1970. The Pentagon Papers were published in 1971. Watergate was 1972, which shook public faith in our touchstone institutions of the presidency and the military. And by the way, as already covered in our show, uh, Terrence McKenna had his experience at La Chorera in 1973. And also, uh, famous science fiction writer Philip K. Dick believed that he was contacted by spirits from another dimension or another planet that same year. And Robert Antoine Wilson, also a famous writer of science fiction and also um, science fact, you might say, sort of a psychonautic guru, um, also believed he was contacted by beings and had a terrifying paranormal experience in 1973, or at least in thereabouts. I think his experience overlapped with 1973. Um, so I guess I kind of figure, you figure in the exorcist in this time period, it seems like it might have been a synchronicitous time for people to be sort of uh, having weird experiences. So I, I also remember that my mom tells me that uh, her mother did not want her to go see The Exorcist because she said that uh, teenagers were coming back from the movie and they were acting strange. They were different. Apparently her cousin had come back from The Exorcist film and uh, had woken up in the middle of the night screaming, I can see the eyes. And he was very disturbed for quite a time. So I wonder if The Exorcist had some sort of uh, synchronicitous resonance with uh, sort of bad vibes. And then also because Americans were going through a period where they were so shaken up by a loss of faith in our institutions, a film about a robed priest fighting the devil may have touched something about people, a need to reconnect with things that were sort of traditional institutions and um, so it might have had a kind of cultural resonance there too. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that, Chris? Well, I'm kind of re I'm reminded from a seminal moment in the first Ghostbusters film where Egon Spengler says, let's say this Twinkie represents the normal amount of psychokinetic energy in the New York area. According to this morning sample, it would be a Twinkie 35 feet long and weighing approximately 600 pounds. To which Winston replies, that's a big Twinkie. Now, I, I'm wondering, so as we kind of talk about these things in these moments through history, it could simply be, as you're talking about the synchronicity, this idea that there's kind of moments historically, there's this kind of natural ebb and flow of 
paranormal, psychokinetic, what have you energy, right? And you just kind of have these pivotal moments where you kind of this kind of uh, cultural uprising of the supernatural as these events are actually taking place. Like people are thinking about these things because they're happening and then they kind of flow away and then they kind of come back again, right? So I, I think that uh, theoretically what you're talking about is certainly possible in terms of this kind of cultural synergy going on with all of these different things at the same time. And it's interesting because we're seeing this kind of cross connectivity between subjects that we cover on our show, right? With the exception of maybe the, the skunk ape. I don't know that he figures in well with uh, the other things we've talked to to this point, but we're certainly seeing parallels, correlations, and maybe, maybe even possible causal connections, right, between these phenomena. Absolutely, Chris. I think we're going to have to keep following up on that. I mean, I know that's something that in the research I'm doing that this period in the early 70s keeps coming up like over and over as a period when a lot of uh, important things seem to happen. And when was the Mothman prophecies? When did that all take place? What was the time oh, period? That's the 70s, too. But um, I think it was 1969 mm. when they saw the Mothman sightings. And I think he writes the book in 1970. Oh, from 1966 to 1967. So, again, I think within the same general time period as well, right? So Yeah, that's true. Again, there was this strong surgeons. Um, you know, I think it's very possible, you know, if we are to believe these things. And, again, on the Spectral Skull session, we don't take – uh, any position, we're leaving that up to you as the listener. However, I think it's very possible that we are in the midst of n another one of these resurgences. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Dane? Yeah, Chris, I've been wondering if it might be, we might be in 1969 all over again, and we're about to go into another 70s type phase for a number of reasons. But this is all cultural and not, um, I'm not, it's not like I suspect there's some sort of spiritual vibe unless it's, um, Spiritual vibes are generated by cultural trends. Just that, um, well, we're having a pandemic right now, and there was a pandemic in 1969. There was, I think it was the Hong Kong flu, and we've had a lot of protests, and there were a lot of protests in the late 1960s, and and then um, psychedelic use is way up. So I've been reading, and psychedelic use is way up in the late 60s, and it stayed up through the 70s. So these are just three trends. Yeah, but I don't know that the culture, so it doesn't have to be, so first of all, it could be biconditional, right? It could be that these things are causing one another, right? So we're seeing the cultural trends um, because there's some kind of psychokinetic phenomenon occurring or and simultaneously there's uh, kind of a cultural trend taking place that might be feeding into that on some spiritual level. Uh, or it, it could be, as you described, it's just purely social and we just have this kind of cyclical nature of our society and there's a resurgence of interest. Or there could be a spiritual phenomenon, right, or phenomena that are causing this cultural resurgence. So, I mean, we can't say definitively. We don't know. Uh, but it is interesting to see these kind of historical parallels for sure. I Also, Philip K. Dick. So I, I think this might kind of... So Philip K. Dick is someone that you talked about, right? Yeah. And I think this might kind of cross over into my next Reddit story here. So I know we were talking about this earlier. Philip K. Dick, he uh, he had quite a bit of success with the ladies, didn't he, Dane? Yeah, that's true. He kind of um, 
Well, he had, he would sort of get, he would get a home, he'd get a house. I don't know if he did this more than once, actually. He did at least once. He just sort of bought a house. I think it was the Bar the Berkeley area. And he was just kind of hanging out with college girls. Um, he was a little bit older at, the, at that point. And uh, he tended to fall in love, kind of hopelessly in love. He was that kind of, uh, I think today we might even call it obsessive, kind of obsessive personality. But um, he got married many, many times. And at one point he married one of these young women that he had, you know, much younger than him. He was kind of uh, obsessive about. I think he did that once or maybe twice. Okay, so now this is the point where we might see a little bit of crossover here. So I have another Reddit story. And this will probably be our only somewhat positive story of demonic possession. And we can kind of kick this one back and forth after we read it. So this is a Reddit poster by the name of Denver Vault Boy. And his post is titled, I'm possessed by a demon and it's not all that bad actually. I've been working with the Incubus for about a month. And so for those of our listeners not familiar, an Incubus is a male sex demon. We've reached a more stable, more equitable compromise over the course of said month. I agree to let him have his fun and even help him sometimes. I am no Casanova, but I've learned a few things about women over the years. So when he's getting shut down by his standard tactics, I suggest alternatives. He hasn't missed a target since. I insisted that he stop going after low-value targets, as he calls them. The strippers, escorts. Homeless girls willing to trade their bodies for a warm bed due to the danger to my physical body and my wife's health. And he agreed. He's also agreed never to touch my wife again on the threat that the second he does, I'll invite the dark man in regardless of the consequences. Other than that, and the fact that he doesn't sleep, I'd say my life has gone fairly back to normal. I go to work and put in another day. Then on the train home, I let him take control. He gets three hours each day to use and manipulate women as long as I get control back after so I can take us home. He used to insist that he was allowed to go out after my wife and I were asleep as well, but I managed to convince him that it was too suspicious. I do wish he would at least let me sleep while he's doing his business, but he claims he needs me now that he's not allowed to target easy women. He needs me there to help. Ever been a demon's wingman? It's pretty out there. I have done a lot of work in the cannabis industry, a cannabis apothecary, if you will. I design dosage programs tailored to specific purposes. Whether you're treating cancer or trying to relax or just trying to create a sensual moment. And all it takes is a few minutes of conversation with the person to figure out a basic ratio of cannabinoids to achieve the desired result. That's why his success rate has gone from around 8 out of 10 to 10 out of 10, because I tell him the exact race ratios and dosages he should give someone in order to loosen them up and then to make them susceptible to him. I still have to watch yet another term of our arrangement. I'm forced to watch while he makes women debase themselves for him. When there's a mirror in the room, he waits for her to not be looking. Then he grins at me like an evil bastard with my own body. He claims that if he's successful enough, he'll be assigned a better position. And then I can go free. I'm not sure if he's telling the truth 
or if he's just waiting for the dark man to get tired of waiting. There was one specific woman that I didn't want him to take advantage of. Her name was Mary Jane, ironically enough. He drew her in, and he used her, but instead of leaving and going home, I stayed. She was sweet. She was kind. She didn't deserve to be used as a sexual object. He took the knowledge I gave him. He got her ridiculously high, and he had his way with her again and again. He made me watch, as usual, but after he was done, I managed to get back control and comforted this lovely woman that had been used by a demon. We formed a relationship of sorts. He got to have sex with her, and I would be the one talking to her, but I wasn't allowed to tell her what was really happening. He tried to convince her to go off birth control, but luckily enough, she was an intelligent person and had an implant put in without his knowledge. I can still see that beautiful face. She was young and vibrant and didn't deserve to be involved with someone who was possessed. He didn't respond well and began to try to exercise his three hours of daily control against me. He started coming on to women while I was at work, collecting phone numbers from our office database of customers. Before it, I knew it, I was out of a job, but he wasn't. I've considered a lot of alternatives. Exorcism, committing myself to a mental institution, suicide, even giving the dark man power. Unfortunately, I don't think I'd survive an exorcism. Committing myself would just give him a new source of vulnerable souls to prey on. And giving power to the dark man would be the same as suicide. So I'm kind of at a loss right now, and I don't know what to do other than to continue cooperating. I had one last card to play, so I hid my thoughts as best I could. Instead of going to work, I stopped at a church downtown, an old one that had been properly consecrated in 1906. I read that demons, especially minor ones, can't enter to hallowed ground. They're simply not strong enough, so I meant to enter the church and force him to stay outside until I could figure out a way to keep him out. and never got to the top of the steps. I heard the term wrath of God before from church, from various books. I didn't know what it really meant until I started trying to climb those steps. The world around me got incredibly blindingly light, and I felt this massive weight pushing me to the ground, like having an anvil on my back. Even then, I kept trying to crawl up the stairs to get to the doors. The crushing weight of his judgment was too much. I lost consciousness and woke up on the sidewalk a few minutes later. Our city has become large enough that an unconscious man lying on the sidewalk doesn't draw much attention. Thank God, eh? He was right there waiting to taunt me. Hey, buddy, looking a bit rough there. I guess I should have warned you. We made a deal in the eyes of heaven. You're just the same as me. I haven't attempted inner church since that day. So back to the daily routine. I work, he plays, then I get to go home. He demands a formula for making a particularly enticing target compliant, and I give it to him. I suppose I'm just as bad as him now. I guess I'm a demon in training. That's pretty dark. Yeah, that's some disturbing stuff. And, you know, he says it's not all that bad, but he clearly does not like this. I mean, he's being compelled to do things against his will uh, that he doesn't feel 
great about it. In fact, he feels pretty bad about it. He describes himself at the end as maybe potentially becoming a demon, as dark as that. He tries to fight this thing, but he doesn't re- really seem to have a whole lot of recourse here. Yeah. Well, it sounds like he's got to go to get an exorcism. I don't know why he says he wouldn't survive one. Yeah, I don't know either. And also, um, he might need he might need to just see a mental health professional too, right? So he admits that himself. Um, I think he's really conflicted. It really sounds like this is a person having a hard time. He's learned to kind of live with this condition that he's experiencing. Um, but this does not sound like a happy person to me. So maybe he's just trying to convince himself that this is an okay life. Yeah, maybe he's like feeling, maybe he's nymphomania and he's dealing with the guilt associated with that. It might be, or might be possessed by an incubus. Yeah, I know, of course. Yeah, that's the one thing. Yeah, the one thing that I'm really, uh, for me, is upsetting is the idea of him drugging women. Now, it's with cannabinoids and hopefully. You know, as he offer, he's offering the substances to them, and they're having awareness of that. But um, that doesn't sit well with me uh, in, in this narrative. I think that's, that's particularly upsetting, right? Is that he's using this knowledge that he has of chemical substance in order to entice and use these women, or at least the demon is doing that, if we believe his narrative. Well, it sounds like the demon has some like pickup artist skills, but then. He has some custom cannaboid brewing skills, and so together they're an unstoppable team. Well, it's certainly a match made in hell. That's a well put. I don't know. I, I I think this individual, you know, regardless of whether that's psychological, spiritual, or both, um, should get some help and hopefully ended up doing so or does end up doing so uh, if, if for no other reason, you know, causing this harm to other people, but also just for himself so he can be happy, you know? Yeah, I would want to get rid of the demon. I mean, I think that all of us as men, we have maybe some hidden or secret desire to become a sex demon, but in actuality and practice, such an existence would be quite awful. Well, it's not good for his soul. He says he can't even go into a church. What's going to happen to him when he dies? I don't know, Dan. I just also, what's know. this business about him being married? I was a little confused by that. No, I think he's married and then he's just sl- sleeping around on his wife. I see. So the, he's just Because of the over. demon. Yeah. Yeah. Because of the demon. That can't be great for their marriage either. I just uh, there's a lot there's a lot to unpack here. We could probably spend the whole night talking about this one, but I think we just kind of need to leave it lie. It sounds tragic to me, and it seems like he, as he says, it's not all that bad. It actually sounds pretty bad for him. Yeah, um, definitely. But he, yeah. So anyway, moving on, Dane. Do you have any other demonic tales absolutely chris so the the one i I guess i need to introduce this a little bit i went and i got a copy of the notes that were kept by 
It's an, they're anonymous notes kept by one of the priests involved in the exorcism of 1949 that took place in St. Louis. It's the exorcism of Roland Doy. Roland Doy. I believe that's how you pronounce his name. And it was, let's see, performed by Raymond J. Bishop. He had to actually receive permission from the archbishop in St. Louis to perform this exorcism. So this is a legit hardcore Catholic exorcism. And uh, reading the notes, it takes place over the course of months. There were a lot of details that I had never heard before. So things I had never heard about. For example, um, they started out in Maryland. So it didn't start out in St. Louis. And it all began in February 1949 when the 14-year-old Roland Doy was um, hanging out with his grandmother. It sounds like she was babysitting him. And they heard a dripping noise coming from the grandmother's room. And they went to investigate. And over time, it resolved into a scratching noise, like a repeated scratching that seemed to be coming from underneath her bed. And they thought it was a rodent. And in fact, the family had an exterminator brought in and they tried to kill it and they couldn't. And they would pound their feet on the ground to try to scare it and it would only get louder. It took 10 days and then it stopped all on its own. And they thought, okay, well, that's the end of it. But then 10 days after that, the boy started hearing the noises in his room. But he heard squeaking like somebody had squeaky shoes on. And they were walking up and down along his bed. And this is where his mother, she got a little bit um, spiritualist on them. The mother asked out loud in the room whether the squeaking was caused by their aunt. So that the aunt had recently died, the boy's aunt. Um, she asked the, the creature or whatever it was to confirm it was the aunt by knocking three times. And it did. And then she asked it to knock four times, and it replied by scratching the mattress like a claw underneath the mattress four times. After that, things started to get weird. So once she had spoken to it and they heard that scratching, they started to hear scratching on the mattress regularly. And that became a consistent theme of the, ex of the possession, was that they'd hear this scratching sound associated with the mattress or the walls. If they ignored it, it got worse. And in fact, if they tried to just pretend they weren't hearing it, the boy's mattress would start shaking. And then a month into the haunting, the uh, the boy himself started to get scratched. And the mother thought, well, like, maybe this is a haunting, like the house is haunted. We should get out of here. So that's when she said, like, let's go to St. Louis. And then the boy started screaming and they found the word St. Louis scratched into his skin. And the mother asked if it wanted him to go to St. Louis, and it scratched, yes. She even asked, how long should we go to St. Louis? And it said, three and a half weeks. The mother asked if they should attend school. Should she put her son in school while uh, he's in St. Louis? And it scratched, no, onto his skin. They had problems with objects being thrown around the house, combs, pieces of fruit, books, and the notes say that 14 different people witnessed these things, including a Lutheran minister and a psychiatrist who was called in, said there was nothing wrong with the boy. They also brought in a spiritualist, and the spiritualist had no luck. So they ended up relocating to St. Louis, 
and there 10 extended family members, so cousins, aunts and uncles, all witnessed the phenomenon. They heard furniture move, they heard scratching sounds, and six different people reported the appearances of the scratches on the boy's skin. So one of the boy's cousins, uh, he was enrolled at St. Louis University, and he asked his professor, Father Bishop, if they could do something for his cousin. And so uh, Father Bishop went and consulted with the president of St. Louis University, Father Reinert, and they decided they would pray for the boy. And they also put in an official request with the archbishop for permission to do a Catholic exorcism. So before they did the exorcism, um, they had to wait a significant amount of time. During that time, they went over and they prayed with the boy and they sprinkled holy water on him. So they found that he didn't respond well to holy water, but they could make the shaking on the bed stop with the holy water, at least temporarily. But then when the priest would leave the room, the bed would start shaking again. Uh, they also, I said, I don't know if I mentioned this already, they brought over relics, which are uh, like pieces of the clothing that, of saints, or um, in some cases, the pieces of uh, like actual bodies of saints, but they were second degree relics. So they should have been pieces of clothing, I think. And uh, the relics did not help. So they were not able to affect the behavior with the relics. And meanwhile, the boy's extended family was going all spiritualist on this. Uh, they were convinced it was the spirit of their aunt. And they were trying to talk to it. And they even set up a Ouija board kind of situation at one point in the kitchen while the boy was asleep in another room. And uh, through the Ouija board, they received a message that it was, in fact, the soul of the deceased aunt and that she had hidden money in the attic and she was trying to get them the money. And that's what this was all about. But they never were able to find that money. So that whole story turned out to be a wash. So finally, in March, this starts in February. It goes on until March 16th. They get permission to do an exorcism. And then that just made things even worse. So uh, they started to see words like hell appearing on his skin. At one point, they saw the depiction of a winged bat creature on his stomach, like scratched into his stomach. Um, as they started to say prayers to try to force the demon out, they started to see words like go and get out appearing on his skin. They asked how many demons were in the boy, but they didn't get an answer. They just got more scratching. <clears throat> and so this went on for an extended period of time. And I think, Chris, you'll probably agree, right? These are all things that you kind of hear associated with exorcisms, right? Like you hear weird things moving around, scratchings, and then there's sort of like physical torment of the person who's possessed. Yeah, absolutely, Dane. And, you know, I you know, did some other reading. And for the sake of time, we might not get into uh, T.K. Osterreich's work. Uh, but a lot of the, you know, kind of torment, that's uh, those torment narratives, you see a lot of that throughout. Uh, people contorting in unnatural ways. In one case, uh, a possessed person being forced by the possessing spirit or demon to kind of dance nonstop. Like, and the person was exhausted and in pain, but couldn't stop moving around and gesticulating. Um, I think that I think maybe more so for the purposes of what we're going to talk about and maybe scientific proof or being unexplainable. When you get into things like uh, objects flying around, moving around, people floating, Dana Barrett style over the their beds. When you have people speaking in other languages that they don't know, I think that you're getting more into that realm of the paranormal in terms of 
real substantial evidence there. Not to say that these other things couldn't be caused by demons, but they could be caused by something else, right? If someone's acting funky and contorting or what have you, right? Well, we could point to a psychological explanation for that. If they are floating around or there's stuff moving around, well, uh, I don't know that we have an explanation for that one, Dane. Yeah, so uh, floating is associated with um, meditation in some cases. And then also, um, you know, in Tibet and India, supposedly different kinds of like ascended masters can float. It's also in the Catholic tradition that um, very holy people will sometimes levitate while they pray. So that is not uh, unique to possession or exorcism stories. And it's not even unique to like negative paranormal phenomenon, right? So it's often associated with people who are very holy. Yeah. Uh, and so what do we think's going on here? You know, as we kind of unpack this phenomenon of demonic possession, I think we really ex more exclusively focused on demonic possession in the context of kind of a Judeo-Christian uh, uh, background. But it's also important to note that throughout history in a variety of different religions, whether that be, you know, a kind of naturist religion or a polytheistic religion, that this concept of demonic possession or being inhabited by outside spirits occurs again and again and again, and that exorcism isn't a phenomenon exclusive to Christianity or Catholicism. So, how do we unpack this? What do we think about this? I mean, it could just be an example of the ev of evil, right? There's evil beings that just are out to get us and cause us trouble. And if they can find their way in, then they do that. And they're kind of hard to get out. And that's why we have exorcisms. And that's why different cultures throughout history have had exorcisms, because it's about getting these things out of you. Yeah, I mean, it could be that there's kind of supernatural external forces. It could be that there's just a psychiatric imbalance, and there could be different explanations for that. It could be that an individual has unbalanced themselves towards, in Freudian terms, their id, right? So right. they're kind of violent, dark, lustful, appetite-driven desires. They've allowed that to take reign in their lives in such a way that's to stabilize their ability to exist and engage successfully with the world. And that through this process of exorcism, there's this hypnotic effect that kind of resets them and allows them to reorient towards society in a way that allows them to be a successful and thriving human being. That's possible too. Yeah, I mean, it could be like um, some people have suggested it's just a poltergeist phenomenon. It's just some people have a lot of psi power and they don't know what to do with it. So it gets kind of directed, you know, on its own. Or Even remember, we talked on our first episode about tulpas, right? The idea you can bring an artificial um, independent being into existence with your own psychic energy. And right? we also Maybe. talked about how tulpas could be demonic possession. That's right. Well, it could cut the other. It could cut the other way. These demons that people are experiencing could be tulpas, and they could be tulpas in the supernatural sense that people are manifesting supernatural beings that they've created, or it could just be in the very psychological sense that we also addressed in that episode, where they're kind of creating these thought forms that are then impacting their psychology, right, and their day-to-day -day existence. 
Absolutely. Yeah, we just don't know. It seems like when it comes to the paranormal and the supernatural, that um, we we were our hypotheses are all radically underdetermined. We just don't have enough information to decide between a wide range of possibilities. Yeah, and I think so too. That because of that, it might be in the best interest of our listeners, and certainly for myself, to tread lightly on this ground. Like, um, maybe these are forces that we ought not to disturb uh, for a variety of reasons. One being that we could just destabilize our own psychology. But even worse than that, we could invite demonic forces into our lives. Yeah, there's just no value to it then. Well, thank you for sitting with us again tonight to another episode of the Spectral Skulls Session. Stay strange, everyone. And stay sane.